Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and nuance behind the headlines. I'm Natasha Mascarenas, and this is our Friday show, our last one of the year. Yes, it is somehow December 30th, and it has been a year. And I know we've already done our big recap on what exactly happened, but there's nothing quite like the moment you see on air that Elon Musk is actually going to buy Twitter. So we're doing something a little fun, which is putting together a highlight reel of some of the best moments that happened on the pod this year, just because nothing really can replace the emotion of processing a crazy 12 months. So stay tuned. We, of course, have to talk about Marianne's beat this entire year, which was Better.com. To many, Better.com signaled the beginning of a downturn that just kept on going. But there were so many more specifics that you have to take a listen to. And Marianne, somehow... Better.com is back in the news. And how did we get here? Maybe is the right question to start with. Okay. Well, I I don't think it's a big shock that Better.com had more layoffs, right? I mean, after Mm -hmm. the the events of the past couple of months, for those who've been paying attention or those who haven't, this saga kind of all started in earnest early December when Better.com laid off about 900 people or 9% of its workforce. Yep via or during a Zoom call, the way the CEO did it. Vishal Garg was condemned all over the world. The video went viral. Which like, wow, what a moment yeah. to be in a tech CEO, have your layoffs go viral. What? <laughs> right. What? I mean, uh, anyways, <laughs> like I said, they're not you... the first company to lay off people during a Zoom call, but I guess it was the way it was done. And then all sorts of things came out that some of it had been reported on, but just, you know, Vishal's reported history of verbal abuse of um, his employees. Emails came out where he was insulting investors, lawsuits filed against him for all sorts of things, and just on and on and on. So he ended up taking a break where the company hired a crisis firm to help. We were all wondering, like, how does he still have a job? A month later, he comes back. (laughs) He's still CEO. A a month-long break? What is this, an episode of Friends? That's like... Yeah, I feel like people do that. <laughs> Sorry to date myself there, but like I really do feel like this is a Ross and Rachel situation. Sorry, Marianne, back to you. No, no, no. I'm trying. Like I'm just trying to. I don't want to overdo it with the history, but it's good context. So you know. Yeah. No. During, Please handhold us. <laughs> yeah. During this whole time, like a bunch of people are resigning. Ton of senior executives were resigning. The company's just like slowly sort of falling apart. To be honest. In the meantime, market conditions are getting worse. Better.com is a digital lender, mortgage lender. It was really big on refinancings, which was really huge 2020, and then started to dip in 2021 as interest rates started to climb. So its business took a large hit. Yep. So with fewer people refinancing and also people struggling in general just to purchase with a higher interest rates, it's been suffering. And you combine that with a hit to its reputation that occurred in December, its business hasn't been doing well. So I heard that it was going to lay off thousands of people this week, which let me be clear, it is not fun as a reporter ever to cover layoffs. Like it sucks. And we always feel we don't enjoy it. Just you know, we enjoy getting scoops. We don't enjoy writing about people getting laid off, just to make that clear. Yes. I had heard about 4,000 and it ended up being just over 3,000 people. All right. So again, understandable market conditions, f***ed up situation. You're going to have some layoffs. But what Better.com did is manage to make it even worse <laughs> because they sent severance checks out through their payroll app after midnight before 
anyone was even notified that they were being laid off and then realized their mistake and then took them back. So for people- Oh, they took them back? Oh, yeah. Until they announced it. Some, so like, that's where we're at today, basically. Well, yeah, wow. so so here's what I believe happened. I don't know for sure. They were originally planning to lay off people on one day and then realized that that had kind of leaked. So they moved it to like another day, but forgot to change that in the payroll system. So severance checks started going out too early. Now, for the employees who've already been through hell and back, this was just like insult to injury. I had people oh, emailing yeah. me, commenting on my LinkedIn post about how disgusted they were with how everything had been handled. They felt completely disrespected. You know, it just, it couldn't get much worse at better.com. <laughs> a, uh, a soft bank company. A soft Just bank company. Throwing yeah. that in there. Because Marianne, they raised last April, May, somewhere in there. Yeah, last year they raised about $500 million, I think it was. Was it all from SoftBank? I don't remember, but it was a, a big chunk was from SoftBank. Yeah. 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 They were going to go public via SPAC. That's definitely on hold. I don't think going public will happen anytime soon for this company if it even manages to survive all this. Yeah. And there are comparisons to WeWork, right? Another kind of prop tech or real estate tech company that was soft being backed with a very eccentric or controversial CEO. So there are definitely some parallels there. Yeah. So like my, after reading your coverage literally for the past like few months, I at first was like, okay, we're seeing what we are seeing with a lot of growth stage companies. They grew too fast, they have to scale back, blah, blah, blah. But now I'm at a spot where I feel like it's, it's very different than just a growth stage company being a little too spendy. It's a company that missed the correct business model, lost top talent and has a shitty culture. And that feels a lot harder to recover from than, oh, yeah. than a company that just had to have a heart to heart moment and really rebuild its processes. And I think that's kind of what's different about better right now. Mm-hmm. Think about Airbnb. Airbnb had a catastrophic start to COVID. They had to lay off a bunch of stuff and then they did it, I think, in pretty good format. Like they were super upfront about it. They paid a lot of money out. They were like, look, this is just what happened. Sorry. And it was generally not well received, but about as well received as it could be, which is, I think, indicative of what happened next to the company, which was strong performance, good execution, and a recovery, if you will. Because Natasha's right, they didn't have a completely shattered culture essentially surrounding one asshat who was the CEO. And it's amazing how culture does in fact matter at companies, shockingly enough. Oh, so, absolutely. Well, I mean, who that worked at better.com after the mess in December had any motivation? Who had any pride, honestly, anymore in their job? Like, yeah. I, I would venture to say it's very few people. And it's a really sad situation. I, I feel terrible for those laid off. I hope they bounce back. We'll have to see what happens next with the company. Marianne, you and Christine wrote a story that was really looking inside the human story of Better.com's layoff spree, including just recent news on more layoffs coming out of them. So I thought you could walk us through some of like the news and then we can get into the more specific stories. Yeah, I've been writing about these layoffs since December of last year. Um, wow. Yeah, it's been going on that long. And so this company, Digital Mortgage Lender, has had like four known mass layoffs, but they're also apparently uh, doing lots of kind of smaller layoffs that that aren't getting as much like press or notice. And over time, that's happening more often. Apparently, we've I started having people who used to work at the company reach out to me over the past few months. And they're they, well, actually, they've been reaching out to me ever since I started covering them. But all of a sudden, it was like a big flurry of people and they were pissed off and upset and even really felt hurt because like they got laid off, they were getting some of them like two weeks severance, whereas people who got laid off earlier this year were getting like 
three month severance. And, you know, they're just like, what the hell? I've actually stuck through this with this company through all this ups and downs, negative headlines and all this crazy shit. And now I'm getting less than two weeks uh, of severance. It's like really upsetting. And that's just one of the many reasons that these people were upset. We'll link the timeline in the show notes because I think it's important for people to see really, I mean, the one year anniversary of you covering that story is actually coming up pretty soon, (laughs) which is wild. But there's one stat that I think put it really well into context that you included, which is at its peak late last year, Better had about 10,000 employees. I mean, now it's much closer to 2,400 workers and one employee estimated that it needs to get to 500 employees in order to actually become this like a more stable business. Yeah. I mean, obviously they leaned too heavily into the refinancing when interest rates were super low and we saw a refinancing boom. Things have dramatically changed since then. Interest rates for mortgages are like sky high again. And they just, they bet too much on it, overhired all those things. And, you know, that happened to a lot of different companies over the pandemic boom, right? Better was not alone. I think, again, what what stood out about Better is just really the the terrible way it handled all of these layoffs. They're very insensitively, really just upset these people. And I have to say, after talking to so many of them, I felt it was really important to get their stories out. And in the past, like I've written these stories and, and we focus a lot on the employers when we write about layoffs, but I thought we really need to give these employees a voice. Like we really need people to hear what I'm hearing because it's horrific and you know, it's, it's sad. And, and I'm not saying that like, I want to share bad news, but I really feel like people need to know this. Christine and I talked to several different people. We ended up writing like the four individual stories. We didn't write it in their voice, but we wanted to break it out like because they are individuals. They're not, I didn't want to just lump them together as, oh, employees were pissed off because we just wanted to give them an opportunity to tell their stories. And so that's what we did. I think it's so important for for people to read every story that you include. I think there's, there's four of them, but the, the common like vibe I got after doing that was that there was like it did a good job of explaining how employees feel like a back and forth and something that even though we try our best with a lot of layoff stories, like you said, they focus on employers, they focus on people losing their jobs, but it doesn't ever get into what you guys did this time, which is there's this back and forth of like choosing to stay at a job. What does it mean to ha- to stay at a company that's getting negative press, but mm-hmm. you are on maternity leave or you are, you know, you can't, you don't want to look for a job during like the looming recession. Right. I think this did a good job of explaining that it's not as simple as quitting your job. And I think sometimes even as tech reporters, it can be like, this is such a like annoying layoff and who could stay at better.com? And it's like, well, these people, because it's hard to leave your job. And I'm kind of glad that we were reminded of all Mm -hmm. the actual human costs. Right. And and one quick thing to say is a lot of these people started with like huge high hopes, right? The company was doing really well. The CEO is very charismatic. They were kind of, you know, they were really excited when they started. And what I heard from every single one of them was by the time they left, they were just, you know, so disheartened and felt just basically crushed by their experience. Like, I felt like they were all just traumatized, but I was just going to say, I really liked how the story also talked to some people who were still there. Mm Because I feel like that part of the conversation gets left out with the layoffs. I mean, if a big chunk of people in your department or a big chunk of people in that you work with day to day get laid off, like that drastically changes the jobs of everyone else who still works at the startup too. I know I have a friend who works at one of the big Boston unicorn companies that recently had layoffs and she now has like four different jobs and she didn't before. And Mm -hmm. it's like, it drastically changes those people's careers too. And I know the story about the woman on maternity leave just really struck me as just like, how bad can it get if a company's cutting 
stuff and the way it is for the people who are still there. And it's sometimes hard to remember that it gets really bad sometimes. Yeah. And I know none of you expected that we would be talking about this during our 2022 recap, but Elon Musk and Twitter, there's so much to the saga from when we believed it wasn't going to actually happen to when it happened to the layoffs. So let's just go listen to what happened. Speaking of dying on hills, apparently Elon Musk was not posting when he decided that Twitter <laughs> needs help and uh, Twitter's going to die on that hill. So where to begin Dude. with this one, guys? Unbelievable. <laughs> Alex, let me just say, I am blaming you because okay. a few months ago, you wrote a piece about how you want more drama on in tech and in tech Twitter. Oh, shit, and then that's right. Ever since, ever since we've jinxed the category of fintech, there has been only tech drama. I feel like equity is the podcast you want to listen to because we're just going to throw out these statements and then they're going to age very, very interestingly. But um, yeah, I mean, this week, I feel like Elon kind of went from mocking Twitter, kind of wanting to build the next next one to then taking nearly 10% of it Mm -hmm. to then taking a board seat Mm -hmm. and to where we are today, I guess, promising that they're working on an edit button and Twitter, in fact, confirming that they've been working on an edit button. So it's just so many kind of bingo boards all clashing together. First thing that I thought of was if you can't beat them, join them. And I feel like that's what happened here is that Elon recognized that, you know, he talked about starting his own social network, maybe realized that was a really dumb idea. And since he can't (laughs) defeat Twitter join it. And that's exactly what he did. Yeah. There's some nuance to this though, because he announced on Monday via an SEC filing that he had purchased, it was about 2.9 billion, I think in Twitter stock or roughly at 9.2% of the company, if my memory serves. Mm -hmm. And he's going to be a passive stake, which is a distinction that matters. And then, you know, 12 minutes passed and he was like, oh, JK, I'm joining the board and I'm actually going to be an activist investor. (laughs) And there are rules about this and and they seem to have been abrogated. I do seem to think that Elon Musk has managed to build not a reality distortion, you know, sphere around him as people said about Steve Jobs, but instead kind of like a regulatory keep it away from me bubble. Like how does he do this consistently and get away with it? Yeah, It's amazing to me, but Twitter stock went up. So that's nice. Yeah. I'm kind of confused here because we know that Elon has gotten in trouble for changing the price of Tesla stock because of his tweets. And so now now, is he going to change the Twitter stock because of his tweets? I feel like there's more room for like mm. mistakes mm-hmm. in the Elon world, but I don't know if that's even illegal because he's not the CEO. What, what counts as legal and what Elon Musk can do and not get in trouble for, I think are different things. In totally. the case of, of Tesla stock, he tweeted out like about taking Tesla private at $420 per share because we're all 12. And he said funding secured when it wasn't. That would have actually ironically been one of the better investments of all time because Tesla stock has appreciated greatly since then. But in this case, he announced it in a reasonable manner, which is through a filing. And the reaction to that Uh. is what the market did, which was excitement. Right. And I think that's okay. But I also wish that I could make a billion dollars in about three days just by buying some stock in a company because whenever I buy index funds, nothing happens. (laughs) Quite sad. I know it would be great to be a market mover. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I'm glad I'm not because that really that means whenever I tweet, I don't have to care about it. You know what I mean? My my tweets don't do shit. My tweets are pretty boring and it's nice to be a nobody. No, they're entertaining though. They're entertaining, Alex. There's like the light reaction to Elon getting involved in Twitter and like the normal sorts of jokes we'll make about it. But then there's also a little bit of a more serious take we should probably give some time to, which is like, what does it mean for someone who, you know, really wants an edit button and has questionable 
positions on free speech to get involved with one of the most powerful social media platforms? And how does that also line up with Twitter definitely prioritizing revenue growth, wanting to grow its daily users and being in a spot where it wants Elon Musk to take a board seat? Elon Musk is not a neutral rich person. Yeah, I don't know if any rich person is neutral, but he's definitely the least neutral you can go. And so I do think we're seeing Twitter show some of its vulnerability. We're seeing Elon get involved in a serious way that some people have been really worried about, but I, I guess I'm just thinking that there was nothing stopping him before and there's nothing that will stop him now from having the impact he wants to have. So I don't know. That's just something that I want to remind people is like it kind of is fraught that we're seeing something so dramatic happen and I'm wanting to have corporate influence in this way. I feel like that's kind of insane. I think yeah. it's insane and I think what's even more insane is that even though we were surprised, we weren't that surprised, right? It's <laughs> yeah. not as shocking as it should have been, really. And I am surprised though that we actually didn't see this one coming. <laughs> I want to say I had jet lag this morning okay. until I was up ridiculously early in bed looking at my phone and that was good. It was propitious. It was fortuitous because Elon Musk has made a bid to purchase Twitter. Now, not startup news, Natasha, but certainly the biggest news in tech today. 100%. And I want to ask you more about your thesis for the exchange this morning because you wrote about it. But the move for him to offer to buy Twitter for, I think, $43 billion after joining the board, not joining the board because of maybe a background check. And then overall, there being a Twitter investor that sued him due to a disclosure of stake. I mean, Yep. Lack of disclosure of stake. I don't think it's even helpful for everyone to fully run through every single step of how we got here, but I do think it's helpful to be like, why is Elon Musk trying to buy Twitter? Like, why was that the move? I thought 9% was enough. When you discuss people who have a lot of power and an ability to follow their emotions, I think finding the core why behind something is tough. And also, probably, even if we had a really good guess, it would be incomplete. Like, yeah. if you should post, part of it is the enjoyment of making noise, being a little random, pushing buttons. And Elon Musk is, you know, even if you like him quite a lot, a bit of a troll. 100%. So to me, this reads like he bought 9% of Twitter, expected to get his way. They offered him a board seat, which is super boring because being on a public company board, dull. And then he realized probably he wasn't going to have the sway that he wanted. And so in a fit of pick, seems to have decided to buy the whole company. It's an interesting move for Twitter employees. I mean, Elon is a market mover notoriously, but I didn't have Elon bringing up Twitter shares around 12%. So they're yeah. currently trading at around $51 per share just compared to yesterday's closing price. And it's like, okay, Elon impacting Tesla's price, fine. This was not something I could have predicted. And I mean, I think it's something that like jokes aside is pretty frustrating to have to cover in a way because you know that he's just messing around. He's not actually going to buy this thing, right? I, well, I also didn't think that they were going to be able to ramp up Model 3 production at the pace they did. And I also didn't think that they were going to be able to land the uh, stage ones of Falcon 9 rockets on uh, drone ships. Oh my God. So with Elon, you always have to kind of go with maybe. Now, in this case, this bid, I don't think is super serious. He's put out $54.20 per share, getting the key 420 number in there for 100% of Twitter, all cash, value sort at 43.4 billion. And to me, it's a little bit cheap. It's too low. Now, he's making a point that it's a premium based on where the stock was before he bought into it, but I don't think that's the right measurement. Yeah. I think really their kind of Q3, Q4 pricing from last year is where Twitter investors want to get back to, which is more in the $60 to $70 per share range. And $43 billion for Twitter with the growth they had last year and their expectations just seems kind of bullshit. 
I mean, let's not forget Twitter very loudly has been like, we need to double revenue by 2023. Yes. They have a lot of things they have to do. And this is a huge distraction. It's something that's going to probably taking up a lot of Parag's time, their new CEO. Oh, yeah. And so I kind of find it at a very not casual, quiet time for Twitter. We've seen their products, we've seen their goals. New CEO, Jack leaving. Elon joining is just like adding more fuel to the fire. Well, Elon not joining, like sitting down at a table he wasn't invited at <laughs> and then demanding to tell everyone else how to use their forks. The best and worst guest. Best and worst guest. Yes. Yeah. You will never be bored but you'll also be glad when they leave. Yes. Yes. We've all had a friend like that. <laughs> well, I'll end this maybe Elon section with a quote from him. He basically said, since making my investment, I now realize that the company, aka Twitter, will neither thrive nor serve this societal imperative, obviously subtweeting free speech in its current form. Twitter needs to be transformed as a private company. He wants to bring Twitter private. Yeah, but he was tweeting the other day about how they should have Twitter without the W. Of course he was. And I don't think he was referring to small bits of laughter. <laughs> He wasn't tittering <laughs> yeah. about that. And so what to me, guy. like he's not he's not being serious. Twitter is a very important company. It really now, is. It's a private company in that it's not owned by the government. And that means that it does have its own ability to make and determine its own speech. I was thinking private in like public versus private. Exactly. I'm just clarifying for people who might be okay. thinking about private enterprise versus private company. Obviously, Twitter is a private company that is currently on the public markets. He wants to make it a private company that's also on the private markets. Got you. But critically, when we talk about free speech, the public government versus private corporate split. It's using similar language. It's a little confusing. Yeah. Twitter does matter a lot because it is a place where a lot of speech happens. A lot of people around the world talk on it. It has over 200 million monetizable daily active users or MDAOs, which is a terrible metric. But I just don't trust it in Elon's hands, given that he doesn't seem to appear to be ready to treat with a similar level of seriousness as he does with his other business endeavors. And Twitter is my baby. And I am a Twitter Blue subscriber. And I'm sure I own some shares in it through index funds. So, you know, piss off. Yeah. Elon making things complicated was what we expected from the start. We're going to continue covering on equity because yes, we yes, have yes, to. Yes, yes. It was funny. We actually originally had this section as like a quick mention, but then this morning. he wanted to buy it. I continuously get floored by the things that Elon Musk does. And he violates so many things. He breaks so many rules and he keeps getting away with it. It's shocking to me. But now I think the big deal this week, right, is that he's trying to say he may not buy Twitter because he's worried that there's too many users that are actually bots. And the big question is, did you not figure this out before you made your huge offer? I mean, why are you just now bringing it up? And the reason we all think is... He doesn't actually... He doesn't want to really buy it. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's weird. <laughs> the hard part about what's happening, and as you perfectly just described, Marianne, is like there's the news that's happening, which is Elon Musk might not follow through with the deal. And then there's the method in which we're finding out about the news, which is Elon clashing with his contract and kind of going against his contract that he's in right now, which is helping him buy it. So it's like from both angles. And so that's why it's hard for me to like know even where to start or where to focus on because it's like mm -hmm. so many layers. I think the very clear through line between both Elon Musk's actions and the news we're finding out as a result of them is that it's clear that he doesn't really want to buy this thing. And it really sucks that it's watering down the work of Twitter, people trying to cover it, <laughs> and just kind of the lawyers behind it as well. I just feel like there's there's so much happening that it's really hard to follow this like a traditional news story. I've never seen anything like it. Yeah. It's also been fascinating to see who's stepped up. I think Chris Dixon was going to put money into this. I think Jason Kalkanis was like putting together money for this and Elon's in there. And there's another VC friend that's putting money. Was it Sequoia? I forget who it was. It's Andreessen, I believe. No, that's Chris Dixon. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So maybe. Um, Anyways, the point is it's a murderer's row of white dudes that are ponying up money to support this weird crusade. Well, I think a big issue is this. He's violating non-disclosure agreements that he's made with the company. He's talking about things that he should not, yes. you know, in front conferences on Twitter. <gasps> and he's 
acting so maturely by responding to the CEO of Twitter with a poop emoji. I mean, really, come on. What is this? Are we like five years old? I mean, it's just shocking. No, even for a five-year-old, it's not very sophisticated humor. But early in the saga, Elon was talking about how, you know, he wanted to make Twitter more politically neutral when he still seemed to want to buy Twitter and wanted to work on bots as a thing versus complaining about bots as an issue that makes the deal untractable, right? And that went out the window really quick. He's now referring to buying Twitter as a way to, quote, own the libs, which is uh, idiot speak for um, basically annoying people who are interested in a more equitable world. Anyways, and now he's he's using the word woke, which has become kind of like a shibboleth among right-wing people to essentially complain about anyone who wants a more kind society, like don't be a jerk to trans people. Ah, you're woke. So to me, like, I don't trust him to take over this company because I don't think he has anything like the seriousness needed to actually to take on free speech questions and let alone handle foreign government's demands for user information. Natasha, am I being too negative? Because I'm kind of mad. No, no, I don't think any of us are being too negative, but we're all going to probably be on the same page here. And I'm sure we're going to get some fun Twitter mentions as a result. But I'll just add that there's something specifically frustrating about us knowing this was going to happen. Us seeing how he's talked and violated SEC regulations on Twitter before buying, trying to buy Twitter. Twitter and seeing his attitude towards people of color and leadership. I just, I think that it's very frustrating that there's like the, we know it's going to happen, but capitalism is making this happen anyways conversation that we've had and continue to have. But the reason it makes sense for us to talk about on this show is that it still is like tech history. And it's also like coming at a really interesting time for when the market is changing. Elon's words are not kind of being looked at in a vacuum. They're around a lot of doom and gloom. So I just think that's like an interesting time for him to be also falling on the sword. Well, I mean, falling apart falling on the sword, kind of pick one. The thing that I think is most important to realize is that Elon is not operating in good faith here. And I think Matt Levine from Bloomberg had the right quote, responding to Elon's complaints about Twitter's bot issues and spam issues, which were known. And again, were part of the reason why he wanted to do the deal. Matt wrote the following. I'm just going to quote a couple sentences here because I can't improve on it. I think it is important to be clear here that Musk is lying. The spam bots are not why he is backing away from the deal, as you can tell from the fact that the spam bots are why he did the deal. He has produced no evidence at all that Twitter's estimates are wrong, and certainly not that they are materially wrong or made in bad faith. Of course, Musk can get out of the deal only if Twitter's filings are wrong in a way that could cause a material adverse effect on Twitter, which is vanishingly unlikely. So what we are seeing here is Elon essentially just being a jerk because he doesn't want to buy the company anymore, but that Twitter didn't want him to buy to begin with, but he just started the process anyways. Like, I, I don't it, know, take a nap. It's kind of like someone asking someone else out on a date and that person's kind of like, eh, I'm not so sure, but okay. I mean, you're really being pushy about it. I'll give it a chance. And then that person's like, yeah, you know what? Never mind. I don't want to go out with you. I mean, what the f- <laughs> Now, we could go on for six weeks on the Twitter Elon Musk fracas, perhaps? Goat rodeo? I don't know what you want to call it. It's not great. And this week, we reached a new chapter in this particular book in which Twitter has now sued Elon Musk to make him buy it. And there's some some logic behind this. But before we get into the nuance, Natasha, when the lawsuit dropped, one, did you find it surprising? And then two, what was your, your take about Twitter's overall argument? Much like all the news these days and all of its variety of shades, I feel like I'm pretty numb to anything happening right now. And so when the lawsuit dropped, I wasn't surprised, Alex. I was very much curious on what exactly we'd see Elon tweet next, because I do think he consistently has a, <laughs> and I'm part of the problem there for sure. But I was just like, okay, like what possibly are we going to see now? Of course, we did see some tweets right now, but Twitter's argument was basically that Elon Musk changed his mind when the market began 
its downturn. So in the lawsuit, lawyers basically say that like Musk raised this call to defeat all the spam bots and showed a lot of interest, obviously offered to buy Twitter. The market declined and that became a lot less attractive. He shifted everything and then demanded that verification that spam was not a serious problem on Twitter's platform and claimed a burning need to conduct, quote, diligence that he had expressly forsworn, a word that we don't um, use quite often enough, honestly. And so (laughs) I don't know if I can pick a side necessarily, but I am. It's very clear, obviously, that Musk is trying to backpedal his way out of the deal and that Twitter is ready with receipts, as Amanda Silberling showed us, as for why it's not okay. All right. We're not here to pick sides, but I will say I read the Twitter lawsuit. I don't know how you anyone would choose to do business with Elon Musk because he rolled into Twitter, bought a bunch of its stock, didn't produce the right filings, talked his way into a board seat, then dropped that, then forced a kind of hostile takeover, made Twitter agree to this, and then immediately afterwards tried to back out of it after trashing the company all over Twitter. And he essentially just flipped his argument entirely. He said, I need to buy Twitter to take it private so that way we can get rid of spam. And then he said, I can't buy and take it private because of spam, which is some bullshit. Um, uh, It it was infuriating to read. Yeah, I have to agree. Infuriating is a good word. I mean, we saw this coming. We knew he was trying to back out. So like him backing out is not a shock. Twitter, I've made this analogy before. It's kind of like, you know, being asked out on a date, being wooed by someone that you're not that interested in. You finally give in and that person just like, eh you know, change my mind, you know, you're not my type. And it's just, it's very frustrating. And I don't blame Twitter for being livid. It's done a a lot to the company to have to go through all this. And I think it's beyond a joke that Elon is getting away with it. It says a lot about the way business is conducted in this country and how much certain people of certain stature and wealth can get away with. And that really pisses me off. There are two legal systems in this country. There's one for the wealthy and then there's one for us. And if you can afford to buy access and time for a fleet of lawyers, you can essentially just tie things up in court forever until everyone wants to scream. If you're poor, you get a public defender and then you go to prison. And Elon is one of the richest people in the world. And so that means that the system that is set up to protect and defend the wealthy protects and defends the wealthy. And so I don't know where this is going. I don't know if Twitter is going to win, but I will just say in terms of how Elon behaved during this process, the way the communication seems to have played out, the way he was tweeting his way through it, it reminds me of like a, a truculent teenager rather than a titan of technology. Totally unprofessional. I mean, really, really unprofessional. I think as you both so beautifully put it, it's just like has evolved past this, even the memes of the memes, it has evolved past that to be like these really like important and frustrating statements on like the way the world works. And it's not lost on me that Twitter has also like internally, it has laid off 100 employees within its talent acquisition team. It's about 30% of its department. You know, it's restructuring. I can't imagine motivation is the same it was when they were on their product spree. And so it's just this frustrating thing to see happening at, you know, selfishly one of my favorite platforms of all time. So I think the impact will be felt for a really long time. Sticking to the theme of M&A because there are no IPOs, insert crying emoji here. The Elon (laughs) Musk Twitter deal probably is now going through. It it seems that Elon has given up trying to get out of the deal he forced into existence and now will pay 54.20 per share for Twitter valuing the social network at around 44 billion. Wow. Thoughts, everybody. (laughs) I'll go first because I don't have a strong one at all. This happened on Tuesday and you're listening to this on a Friday, maybe a Saturday, maybe late. Things could have changed by the time that this episode comes out. And so a huge asterisk to everything we say. And, And that is my take. But no, jokes aside, I feel like it was it was interesting to see this happen now. We knew that the Musk versus Twitter trial was 
set to begin kind of smack dab in the middle of disrupt on October 17th. So that's <laughs> up for question now. Um, and I think Amanda put it well for tech journalists, especially those at TechCrunch. This is a blessing because now we don't have to miss out on drama because we'll be on stage interviewing people. I mean, I think that it's believed that that's part of the reason why he decided to move forward with the deal is that he wanted to avoid trial and he didn't want, I think the judge was ordering deeper dives into communications he had with the alleged whistleblower, things like that. So, I mean, honestly, after as hard as he's fought over the past couple of months for him to kind of cave right now, makes me really curious as to what he doesn't want to be shared with the public. Yeah. I wonder also how much of it is just his friends all texting him things like, hey, do you want a billion dollars? And I, and they probably didn't expect their private communications to end up not just <laughs> in the public sphere, but dissected by the entire technology Twitter community and ruthlessly mocked. Ooh. <laughs> it was a it was a fun day. People were like waiting for that. I I had a blast. It was <laughs> if you followed the Adam Levine Instagram DMs fracas. This was the equivalent of that in the technology world because we don't cover celebrities per se. Good analogy. There are many good memes. We'll put that aside. Let's just handicap this and then move on. Natasha, you go first. Uh, Percent chance the deal happens loosely at the original price sometime in the next three months. What's your What's your guess? I would like. I'm going to say yes. It's going to happen because if it doesn't happen, then I don't know what to believe anymore. So okay, that's that's where I'm at too. Marianne, do you have a dissenting view? Yeah, I, I think same. I think he's really, like I said, I feel like Elon's trying to avoid something in a big way. And so, you know, he's wi- he's willing to just go ahead and get this over with. But you never know, right? How many times have we seen things change over the course of the past few months with regard to this deal? Exactly. Yeah. The last thing I'll, I'll say, and then we're going to move on to a very important story about crypto shilling, is that uh, there's been some commentary that the CEO of Twitter actually has been holding up pretty well. I think since Parag, and he's been I mean, he got this job and then the whole world exploded underneath him. And so you got to give the guy points for just being in a tough spot. But if you look at the text messages he had with Elon, very measured, very calm, a level of maturity, I'm just going to say it, that I don't have. Because if Elon Musk was posting in my SMS, I would be very cross with him. And Parag was just so mature. And so I think the only person who comes out from this entire episode looking good is the current CEO of Twitter. That's a great take. And one that I haven't heard much. I'll, I'll yeah. co-sign that. Agree. Shout out Bloomberg for writing that and letting me paraphrase it. I forget who wrote <laughs> that story at Bloomberg, but you're great. The news is that uh, Twitter might not undergo as many layoffs as we thought. This is something that we learned on Thursday. As of Wednesday, when we put together the script originally, we were expecting Elon to lay off around three quarters or up to three quarters of Twitter staff. And it turns out via him dropping by the office, that's not going to be the case. So I have no idea, but the context here has dramatically changed. Um, And then I'll add one more thing before I get your feedback, but the company is going to be taking on presumably quite a lot of debt in this transaction, which means that it needs to generate more cash to service that debt. One way to generate more free cash flow is to fire people, uh, at least in the short term. So Anita, let's start with you. Vibes on the Elon axe swinging that may or may not come. The vibes are really off. Like I'm super confused. I I guess he said that he's just kidding, not going to lay off 75% of the staff after all. But either way, I mean, this is just really awful having your whole workforce of the social media platform sort of hanging in limbo and wondering what like what the hell is going to happen next. Right. And it's also like Twitter, unlike some other social media platforms, it has always had a smaller staff. So cutting 75% of people makes a bigger dent here than in other places. It would have impacted around 
5,600 employees and they only have 7,500. And I don't know. I just think about that too. Is like one thing I've always thought about is like for how important Twitter is to the world, it doesn't have that many employees. So we'll see. Even if he doesn't lay those people off, there's going to be churn in many ways. We'll see over the next few months. There is even when the leader isn't that controversial. So add in the controversy, add in the fact that Twitter has a very political and thoughtful staff. And I think we're going to see a lot of change on the personnel front. I want to end with this section a little bit with talking about this letter. Employees wrote a letter to Elon Musk, the board of directors and general staff, and basically said that this layoff will hurt Twitter's ability to serve the public conversation. Quote, a threat of this magnitude is reckless, undermines our users and customers' trust in our platform, and is a transparent act of worker intimidation. And I think that it's, I mean, it's such a powerful letter. I'm sure we'll link it in our show notes. I think it's important to read. We don't know too many details about it, but I do feel like a little bit like this, this is the theme I was talking about last week where it's like reputation matters and the power of the employee is really important right now. And I think it's been interesting to watch that letter get mocked by a lot of uh, very wealthy people yeah. arguing that, you know, these people are, are more activists than employees and blah, 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 blah. Oh man, someone's out of touch. Yeah. I mean, you can decide who it is in this particular scenario, but uh, if I was buying a company and I was overpaying 3x for it, given current market norms, I might not attack the people that are currently making the servers blink. I think that's why him walking in with like holding a sink just like didn't sit right with me. The news that he is kind of reversing this rumor or whatever, that the 75% layoffs aren't going to happen. That happened after he walked in with a sink. And I just think that like, just morale wise, it's an exhausting place to be right now. i not a Twitter employee. I don't know what the exact temperature is. I'm glad I'm not one right now, to be quite honest. Yeah, it's just, it seems like I'm sure there's a lot of disagreement internally. Even I mean, it's just a spectrum of emotions. And I'm sad I'm not in SF or else I would just go camp out in their cafe and, and try and, I don't know, talk to some of them. Well, someone please let me into Twitter HQ again. Thank you. I know the last time I was there, we drank a whole bottle of Jameson. But <laughs> we're going to move on, though. No more Elon Musk for the rest of the show. Yay. Pretty sure about that. If we don't live up to that, we owe you a Coke. We ended with somehow a crazier news cycle than any month before, which was FTX. We're talking bankruptcy. We're talking SBF's interviews and his eventual arrest. I mean, there's so much. Stay tuned. Speaking of layoffs, FTX has laid off its market cap, its market reputation, its relationship with regulators, its US political clout, and I think all goodwill in the crypto community in the last couple of days. Where should we pick up this thread is my question, because there's been so much going on. Should we give an overview, guys, or should we just pick up on the last couple of bits of news? I'm torn. Yeah, that's hard to say. I mean, obviously, it kind of all started with Binance saying it was going to buy FTX, right? Was it non-US assets? Yeah. And then they backed out and then all sorts of shit has come out since. Well, I, okay, <laughs> I'm going to extend that back a little bit further. It turns out that the rise of FTX and its sister company, Alameda, which was its kind of trading sister company, was a little bit more um, full of chicanery than we might have thought. And there was apparently some lending back and forth and some counterparty risk, as they say. And uh, that was not really, I think, made clear to us on the reporting side or the public side. And then when Binance kind of helped to engender a run on the bank, if you will, uh, I think that's a legally safe way of saying that. FTX became apparently much more fragile than we thought that it was. And then the most recent thing is the Binance deal has fallen apart. There is squawking from American regulatory bodies. And it appears that FTX could go to zero, Becca. And Sequoia actually talked about that. We were talking about this a little bit all on Slack about Sequoia's memo that went out yesterday. One, I can't think of a time in my experience covering this space that I've ever seen that an LP memo like that purposely made public by the firm in question Mm -hmm. and them writing down 
the company to zero was, I mean, probably accurate, but it's just stark to see, especially at this point in the process, because, I mean, hard to believe anything that Sam Bankman-Fried is saying right now, but he is saying, like, the company may be in talks, like, some stuff may be able to come back, like, they may be able to sort of save or gain some of that liquidity that they're missing, obviously, especially with Binance walking away, but Sequoia to just already be like, nope, we're writing it down to zero. It's a loss. Like, even with what happens from here, like, that's very telling about sort of how venture will approach this, especially going forward. Right. I mean, just earlier this year, FTX was valued at what, $32 billion. It has raised uh, about $2 billion to date. Sequoia being so public about this is it's obviously making a point that it wants to distance itself from FTX. Um, and Connie, who wrote the, the piece about it, her assumption is that most investors are going to. So if FTX is looking for its backers to bail it out, probably not going to happen here. Well, no, VCs won't throw m- more, more good money, money after bad. <laughs> to a sinking ship. Oh, yeah. I mean, like if you, th- if you add weight to a sinking ship, it doesn't uh, gain billiancy. The question is just what will individual FTX users get back, if anything? Hopefully they get back 100%, but we'll see. Jackie, our uh, senior crypto reporter on TC Plus, noted that volume on FTX, it's cratered so much that even if it did somehow survive, I don't think it's ever going to survive, right? I mean, like who's going right. to trust them now? So the question really is just how much, how much damage is there once the smoke clears from the impact? No, and you make such a good point there too about the users, because I feel like when we had sort of the issues with Robinhood and some of like the Wall Street bets stuff from last year, users and users losing money and sort of consumers losing money was a much bigger part of the conversation than it has been thus far, at least from what I've seen from FTX. It seems like a lot more asset recovery as far as the business goes and sort of investors and sort of like that type of player. Maybe I've missed it. But that is something I thought last night as I was going through things um, toward the end of the day was that I felt like I had seen significantly less coverage on sort of the actual human aspect of this in the people who just wanted to try investing their money. Of course, obviously, you take risks doing that. No one doesn't know that. But you also don't expect a $32 billion company to evaporate overnight either. Right. So I just feel like that hasn't been as big of the conversation with FTX thus far. And I'm not sure why, but um, definitely something that I noticed. So you're saying, you don't, you know, when you're taking risk investing in crypto, you're taking risk because you think, okay, the, the prices might be volatile. You're not you're not taking risks and thinking that the company is going to crash and burn a few months later. Right. You know what I mean? So yeah. And then, and I think Jackie tweeted recently, there was about $5 billion of withdrawals on Sunday alone, FTX, which is insane. Yeah. But you know what? Why would they be operating on a fractional reserve basis? Maybe, maybe you shouldn't make your own token and then print it and then give it to your sister company to borrow against and get yourself levered up to the freaking neck. And then so that way you can get exploded over the weekend. Like, how did no one sit him down, SBF, and be like, this is dumb. You're going to get caught. Let's talk about FTX, but not about Sam Bakeman fried I'm not going to bring up the words drugs, polycule, really most of the things that are going on. I want to talk instead about the fallout. And Natasha, yes. something that we covered this week on TechCrunch was that Nestcoin, which was an African Web3 startup venture thing, had a bunch of its assets in FTX. And it's not alone, but it did feel representative or indicative of the damage that the FTX implosion will cause, not just to the company itself, not just to its backers, but to 
other nascent technology companies. Yes. And, you know, Becca last week on Equity, shout out Becca for stepping in, said that she was missing the human interest story here. We knew that a lot of people, big people, influential people were losing money, but like, what about a startup employee? And I think this story really hit it home for me. So Nestcoin had to lay off some employees because they had put a lot of their day-to-day operational budget, a significant portion of the stablecoin that they had raised in FTX. And to me, it really like, it really cemented this idea that the fact that someone is losing lots of money, things are being marked down to zero. Like, I think those are all really big statements that we don't really know how they play out in real time. And so I don't want to say I'm happy to have this example, but I do want to say, I think it like is a warning and a more specific one, a more impactful one than Sequoia marking its investment down to zero. To me, when I hear that, I'm like, sucks for Sequoia and LPs, but this is like, okay, no, like people were actually impacted here. Real people, not just investors. See, the scale of impact on a per entity basis can be much greater than the, the dollar amount might make you kind of think. So let's say you're a venture capital company, you put 200 million into FTX. If you could put that much money into FTX, a single deal or a single company, you have billions of dollars in assets under management. So if you lose that, it's not good. Right. It's a painful write down. It's gonna be a bad letter to your LPs, but you don't lose your house. You know, you still have a gig. Exactly. If you're an employee of Nestcoin, where they had their assets on FTX and just got laid off, you could be in a much bigger jam, even if the dollar amount's smaller. So it's really the, the human capital that we care about here versus the financial capital. It's it's exactly. It's what sits wrong with me. Like, you know, the next kind of impact that we saw happen this week was that SoftBank has written down its nearly $100 million investment in FTX. And- we can say more about that, but I think like the thing that frustrates me is like it does feel just like a little tone deaf to be like, we marked it down to zero, but here's how much money we actually have and how many gains we actually have. LPs, don't be worried. I get why they're doing it. Don't get me wrong. And I think it's a signal. Don't get me wrong. I don't know. It, it feels like an awkward flex in an environment where people are losing jobs. And I haven't talked about FTX in the pod yet. So I've just been holding on to this yeah. for a while. So Natasha, how on a scale of one to mad, how livid are you? Because my, my read is that you have a small chip on your shoulder about <laughs> the uh, the loose use of capital here and regulatory oversight and internal controls. So I think you wrote a story this morning that really, I think, put it well that I'll add to, which was maybe FTX was the poster child of 2021's hype, if I'm not butchering that headline. Close enough. Yeah. Parker Thompson didn't like it, but that's okay. <laughs> oh, great. Well, it's like, that is what I agree with. And I think that's why it, I, it hurts in a way, because it's like, we've been talking about due diligence, we've been talking about discipline, and we've been talking about how FOMO impacted investment decisions. But now we have this really visceral example and I'm kind of like, I don't know, my hands are a little up saying, I think this will impact crypto. I don't know if this is going to make investors do more due diligence on companies. Just to explain what I was trying to do in that piece, the thing that I was trying to say is, it seems like FTX had a exacerbated or, or more extreme version of a lot of the issues that we saw last year. And I was trying to compare it's lack of a traditional board, founder control, yeah. opaque finances, rapid fire fundraising, you know, et cetera. These things that became more prevalent, I would say, in 2021 when capital was fighting amongst itself to get money into startups. And therefore, investors gave up or passed on a lot of stuff that they would have traditionally demanded in terms of oversight, due diligence, and so forth. And so to me, FTX kind of got to where it was on the back of a crypto boom and then also a non-governance boom combined for an epic explosion. But it was indicative of 
stuff we saw last year. And if that's the stretch, well, then I apologize. But I was out of ideas on Thursday morning. <laughs> no, so I mean, I, I co-signed your perspective clearly, but I think this is where we bring in former SoftBank COO Marcelo Clore. He tweeted, quote, I have been reflecting personally on the whole FTX fiasco and it taught me one more time that we should never invest because of FOMO and we should always 100% understand what we are investing in. I totally failed here on both. There's yeah. two ways to read this. One is kind of like the faux, like, humbleness of a mistake that is now clear to everyone. But I will take the more optimistic approach of like, I actually think it was really helpful for Marcelo to tweet this because it makes something explicit that people are kind of whispering about. He actually cited FOMO as a reason for why he invested in FTX. And to me, it's just helpful because it shows that someone like, you know, we know SoftBank's made mistakes in the past, but I still think it's helpful to hear how they were thinking and what went wrong here. And from an investor perspective... Let's be brief on SBF because I presume everyone was inundated with all of this as it happened. But Natasha, I'm so glad you watched the big interview yesterday live and you came away convinced that everyone in crypto is on the up and up and that Sam Bankman Freed <laughs> is the person you should make the godfather of your first child. Wow. You, you stole the words. I don't know what to say for this section anymore. Uh, the, the interview was at the New York Times annual deal book summit, which for some reason was controversial. I'm going to try and not talk about the fact of how annoyed I was that people were surprised that a publication would want to freaking interview him. But anyways, SBF showed up and as we put in the headline, just claimed a lot of ignorance on, on conflicts and Quotes that you should think about was, you know, he said he didn't knowingly commingle funds. He said that he believes this from what I know may be. It was a lot of hedging. It, it was interesting because he also admitted that his lawyers told him that they're not very much in support of him doing interviews. And so maybe there is this middle ground where SBF is choosing to be vocal, but not in a way that's really giving any clarity. So at this point, it's just kind of this like round table. And you'll see this with his GMA interview today, too, or it came out on Thursday morning where he just kind of is playing dumb a little bit. And I think Vice had the best headline where he was like, they were just like, Sam Bankman-Fried is looking for the guy who did this. And I <laughs> loved that. I loved yeah, it. That is the I vibe mean, I'm getting. I, I don't know. I kind of go with Connie's take on it. She wrote a story with a, her own headline of was SBF's appearance of performance. I mean, if this guy was that ignorant about so many things, then what the hell was he doing starting up a company like this and raising all this money? I mean, I just... I, I'm sorry, I don't buy that he was that ignorant about so many things. Give me a break. Yeah. You know what? If if there was like one company and then there was Alameda and he got a little little confused by it. Okay. You know what? Sure. I, I'll I always ascribe to incompetence what could otherwise be ascribed to malice, blah, blah, blah. But there were like a hundred and some entities, right? In this bankruptcy proceeding. They don't prop up like mushrooms on the ground. You have to make these things and approve them and sign them. He was involved. He was synonymous for a reason with this company. Yeah. It, it was really confusing to see someone show up and act this way. And I think it was like, I honestly recommend people to go watch the interview. It should still be on the Times website because it is like you don't see someone as he even said during the interview, like the advice is to hole up and not talk to the press or people as you figure this out. He is not doing that. And I do think it's offering this kind of crazy window into how a billionaire falls from that to someone who has one working credit card in like a matter of days. I will try and share some news that broke during it kind of broke. One was that he keeps claiming that FTX US is solvent, which we kind of knew, but he says that if they were to open withdrawals today, US customers could be made whole. And towards the end of the interview, he still thinks all customers could be made whole. Yeah. And I'm just kind of like, okay, well, thank you for giving us more and more on the record statements. Yes. But he said that a lot of the assets are illiquid. So if you give me my account's worth in FTT tokens, it's it's a little bit like McDonald's paying me in McBucks. Yeah. Except for McDonald's is closed. Yeah. 
<laughs> right, right. Yeah, you like, don't really know what it what that means. Like, what does Philly Hole even mean in this context? I mean, we'll keep following it. The story, like I said, is like, it's not even a chapter in. There's volumes to come. And wh- I feel like with the way that he's handling the press, maybe he'll come on Equity next year. Who Sam, oh. Sam, we'd love to have mm-hmm. you on. We, we have kind of the same questions as everyone else. But if you want to come and not answer them on this show, cool. Sounds good. All right. Well, that is a wrap. And let me just speak on behalf of the entire equity team that we are super thankful for you to stick with us during the craziest time in tech, one that include a lot of yelling, spicy headlines, and probably annoyed some of you at some point. So let's do it all over again next year. You can follow Equity at EquityPod on Twitter, but take a break. Enjoy the rest of the year and we'll start fresh in the new year. Equity Fridays are hosted by myself, Editor-in-Chief of TechCrunch Plus Alex Wilhelm, and TechCrunch Senior Reporters Natasha Mascarinas and Mary Ann Azevedo. We're produced by Teresa Loconsolo with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development, and Henry Pickabet manages TechCrunch audio products. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll be back next week.